0: Gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention?
0: We have a great show
1: for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out where the seventh chair appeared. And um, today we're having a return guest. It's only his second time, so he needs three more visits for the gold jacket. But uh, he was wildly popular the first time he was on. And I have to say, I just want as a matter of full disclosure, first of all, I've known the guy for decades and decades, uh, but second of all, um, had I known that he was going to be on Charlie Sykes' podcast yesterday, I might have had second thoughts about this. Nothing wrong with Charlie's podcast, all that kind of thing, but you know, just covering the hand-me-down issues that Charlie leaves behind <laughs> is not why I got into this business, but I only noticed it on the car ride in and it turned out to be very fortuitous because then I got to listen to it. And so I, I am better prepared to, uh, uh, interrogate Will Salatan on his uh, return trip visit to the remnant. Will, welcome back.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on, Johnny.
1: Um, so, uh, w- before we get to all this stuff you wrote this big article it's a good article um about how the issue isn't left right it's truth not truth and i, I do really want to get to that but for people for among my listeners who are a little sick of trump talk um i figure we would start with something that you've been covering and writing about and think about a lot which is just the COVID stuff and the pandemic um so how do you think the uh the 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 biden team has um responded to COVID. i mean it's clearly his mandate right and uh uh presumably they came in with plans out the yin yang that's what your people do is make plans for things <laughs> so uh how, how how goes the implementation of all the plans
0: uh, i think it's i think it's great i mean uh, the, the problem is it's very hard to judge biden because of you know and i'm nowhere i guess we're not supposed to talk too much about trump but you know the, biden kind of had the sanity lane uh, the the Trump administration was just kind of nutty and incompetent and they did just about everything wrong you could do wrong and so really all Biden has to do to be relatively competent is to get the vaccines out um, to get them out even on the schedule that they were supposed to have been out according to the Trump administration which he's doing and um, and to get people to you know to, to put out the, the, the health message about masks. I mean, if you're doing vaccines and you're doing masks, um, uh, then you're going to save a lot of lives and you're going to get the economy opened up quicker. You're going to get schools opened up quicker and, um, all of that's good. So I, I don't, I don't have a problem with the stuff about the pace, you know, like, is he going to do a, a million shots? He, he's not doing it. Is the government going to get out a million shots a day? Or are they going to get out a million and a half? Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not too fussed about that. I think we're picking up steam and we're, you know, the numbers are going to steadily improve. So I'm okay with it. The money, the
1: money's another question. Money's another question. Money's always another question. And, um, uh, but I'm going to push back on this a little bit. I, I will stipulate, so we don't get mired in this, that, uh, cause we're all still just trying to find our sea legs in this sort of quasi post Trump world. Um, Greece doing better than Trump, certainly on messaging certainly on reassuring the public, uh, um, lowering the temperature in productive ways, raising the temperature in productive ways, all that kind of stuff. Totally agree on that. Um, This raises as a tangent, one of my great peeves against some of my conservative friends during the Trump years, where whenever they were asked, how is Trump doing? They would say, um, as one woman did on a panel I was on with her. uh, Well, in in every regard I ask, is he doing better than Hillary? Or is he better than Hillary? And I tried to point out at the time that if the conservative standard was always that the incumbent Republican, as long as they're better than what the leader, the can the Democratic candidate they were running against, uh, then conservatism means nothing, right? I mean, basically, as long as it's like if 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 conservatives have to support a Republican. And as long as he or she clears the bar of being better than the Democrats we hate, then what does it mean to be a conservative? But anyway, because I hear this in responses to some of the stuff that I've been writing, a lot of Democrats saying, "Well, he's doing a lot better than Trump," or "He's a lot better than Trump." That has to be a there has to be a higher bar for liberals than that, right? Considering what you guys think of Donald Trump. So let's just stipulate he's doing better than Trump. That said, the pace of his last week in office, you know, the U.S. was doing. Uh, I believe it was 972,000 vaccinations a day. Um, Getting it to a million is not a huge, impressive leap, right? Even getting it to 1.5, Ezra Klein writes today in the New York Times that that goal was way too conservative. Um, Why isn't there, I mean, I I think there's a very conventional game of playing with the expectations so that he can exceed them. And that's normal politics, but the whole—if you think you're, if you're coming into office pledging you're going to fight this like a war, you shouldn't be telegraphing normal politics. What's uh, saying, no, I, you, Mr. Salatin?
0: I it. it's an it's an expectations game, and in fact, you know, within I think it was yesterday, he pretty much gave that away. You know, they yeah. they're, they're saying, when pressed, that it's not enough. He's saying, well, really, that's not the number. That's the number we're promising, but we intend to over deliver. So pretty soon you're going to get to the real, and he actually did because he's Joe Biden and, you know, he's not the greatest thinker on his feet. He did just spill out one and a half million. Um, so I think that's what they're actually aiming for. Um, the They may be aiming for two, um, but uh, I think that ultimately, I agree with you about the warped expectations from Trump and uh, we, we should be aiming higher than, than one and a half, but really it's, it's the acceleration that I'm interested in. Um, mm-hmm. And there, I believe in every country there has been an acceleration curve. So, you know, let, let's, let's see where that gets us. But, but in terms of the ultimate outcome of this, I have been telling everybody that uh, those of us who are not in the top, uh, you know, the first brackets to get the shots should be getting them by May. And uh, we'll see if that turns out. I mean, if it's into July and August, that's going to be a problem. I don't, I'm not going to like put up with another school year with another, you know, fall that's where we don't have
1: a vaccinated country—that's crazy. Yeah, I want to get to the school stuff in just a second because I think it's a much bigger deal than a lot of people realize. Um, but I just have a science question, right? You follow science stuff on this better than better and more than I do. Um, I remember early in the pandemic, the, the rule of thumb was that for every diagnosed case of COVID, there was going to be five or 10 cases that weren't, right? The the infection rate was going to be much higher than the diagnosis rate. Gottlieb said, "All oh, everyone said this, right? And I think that's still remains true, right? Well, if we've passed the point of something like, what was the number, 25 million diagnosed cases?
0: Yeah, something like that.
1: Well, if we have 25 million diagnosed cases, even at the low end, if there are five cases that aren't reported for every one that is, doesn't that mean check my math here, that 125 million people have already had it.
0: Yeah. I don't um, think, yeah, I don't think it's five to one. Um, I mean, remember that that's an effect, the undiagnosed, the, un, the undiagnosed infections is an effect in part of, in, of, of testing. And so as the testing improved, I think that number probably went down, but, but, uh, I don't know what the outlying number of cases is um but theoretically those people do have immunity and mm-hmm. so it could not be we could not your your conclusion there could not be true or we would have we would have we we would be pretty close
1: to herd immunity yeah i just haven't heard anybody explain it you know that's my problem i mean i either i have stumbled onto the greatest cover up of all time other than hillary clinton filleting faces off of babies and wearing <laughs> this mask, but, uh, um, or there's just something I'm not understanding about all of this. Cause, uh, and similarly, you know, there's this talk about how if, uh, you've had it before, you shouldn't get the vaccine yet or something along, along those sides. But mm-hmm. we've also been told that there were untold millions of people who probably had it, but were asymptomatic. So how mm-hmm. do you, if, if you've had it and you don't know that you've had it, Um, or you're not, or you never tested to confirm that you had it. Um, what does that mean about whether you should get the vaccine?
0: Yeah. Uh, they're, they're telling everybody to get it. They're telling you, uh, if you know, you had a case to, to get the vaccine, get, get vaccinated too. I mean, they, they don't have, uh, they don't have terrific data yet on how solid the immunity is from natural infection. How long does it last? You know, how does it cross apply to the other variants? To what degree? Um, They're just telling everybody, look, they have data on the vaccines, so they would like you to get vaccinated um, and let let the tested immunity apply across the board. But I still, my, my, uh, I mean, the the number that was really bothering me is that they're they they kept going up with the percentage of infections that they thought were being caused by asymptomatic carriers. And the last I checked, it was mm-hmm. like around 50%. Um, uh, and you know, that's obviously alarming because, um, as long as we continue to just be focused on testing the symptomatic people and monitoring that we're, we're we've, we've just been missing the massive transmission.
1: Um, i so tell the school thing. Um, I can't remember where you come down in particular on, um, Teachers' unions, um, you know, I, I can't remember if you were as much of an apostate who must be set ablaze as, as Jonathan Chait, um, but um, it seems to me like if you were, I mean, all right. So this is a good way. We'll, we'll, this is we can put a pin in this point so that we can come back to Trump on it later. But like, I am increasingly of the belief that all Republicans need to do is not be insane not be incredibly stupid and not be obnoxious as hell, just be normal soup eating guys in a suit kind of thing and let Democrats be the crazy ones. Right. And if they could, if, if they could all just be Rob Portman boring people to death, uh, Republicans could be a majority party in this country. And, um, and I think that, like, the one of the more substantial drivers of or our, our cases in point on this is I think the teachers unions are doing enormous damage to their brand with Democrats in ways that they haven't for a very long time. Because in most of the very blue cities, you know, the people who want to be able to send their kids to schools are also Democrats. A lot of them are city workers. They're essential workers. The essential workers in almost every other category have stepped up, whether it's hospital nurses or waiters or supermarket checkout people. And the one group that says they don't want to do their part for the most part have been teachers' unions. And I think if you go into another fall with the school still not opening, you're going to see a lot of sort of liberal Democrat, blue collar, and white collar Dems lose their fricking minds. And if you had a sane, normal Republican Party, that could exploit that. It could be a really big deal. It's just really hard to do when you're calling the seizure of the Capitol a false flag operation.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, I am, am I as much of an apostate on this as, as, as uh, uh, close, close. I think he he has more grounding in it. So uh, I do think this is a weakness of the democratic party. I mean, look, my perspective about, so you have your thing about the Republicans just need to not be crazy. My My I was looking at it from the other end and I was for the last couple of years, I was like the Democratic Party needs to be a party of the center, center left, be the sane party because the Republican Party has gone crazy. And if we can take the House and can take the Senate and can take the White House and can have a sort of Bill Clinton like without the Bill Clinton problems. Uh, character at the the front. I was thinking of Pete Buttigieg, but somebody who can sort of speak to middle America and speak to conservative values while implementing some sort of popular progressive policies. Um, That person could sort of establish uh, the party of the mainstream. And I've lost faith in that. I've lost faith in it in part because of things like what you're talking about with the teachers unions. The Democratic Party just is not going to do that. They're not going to be that. There's just too much too many interest groups and too many, too much sort of wokeness on the left. And so that's why part of why we need the Republican Party to be saner is because the Republican Party is going to be hanging around power almost any way you cut it. Um, but on the specific thing of the teachers unions, here's where I wish I understood economics better. But I do understand this concept in economics of sort of un, unmeasured costs, right? So a classic unmeasured cost is we're going to dump a lot of labor on women, on wives. They're going to be taking care of families and we're not going to compensate it. And we're just not going to count that, right? That's your problem, ladies, right? So in the case of schools, what we've done is we've dumped a lot of unmeasured costs on parents. We're like, hey, hey, we don't want to risk infections. We don't want to risk teachers getting sick. So you guys just, will do school, but we'll do it from home. And I don't think there's been any serious accounting of the damage that's doing to households and to moms more than dads um and it's and just kids. Prim- yeah and the kids yeah sorry and so it shows up eventually in the suicides right the suicides in in Las Vegas and other places right um so all of these costs are being dumped on people so that we can protect teachers now if we reopen schools in person some teachers will get sick some teachers will die it will not be a huge number But if you're a teacher's union and that's all you care about is making sure none of your members get sick, then it is a rational calculus. But it's not a rational calculus from society standpoint. The rational calculus for society is the number of people who will get infected from reopening schools is not greater than, in fact, is far less than the damage that is being done collectively by not opening the schools.
1: Um. I agree with all that. I mean, I think that it's it's um it's very frustrating. You know, the I was promised, and I he hates it when I bring this up, but my friend Andy Smerick from uh Manhattan Institute, who does a lot of education policy stuff, um he promised me there was gonna be all of this crazy and brilliant invent, you know, innovation and outside the box thinking to deal with the school issues during the pandemic and he swears there there is some of it out there and it just doesn't get coverage, which I think is really dumb of mainstream media. If it's really going on, you should be shining a light on it as for a demonstration effect of ways to do in-person schooling. Um, but for the most part in the big cities, at least there's been no effort at innovate innovativeness. There's been no, and like, I would have no problem if they wanted to turn my kid, my kid goes to private school and, but they wanted to turn it into a boarding school for six weeks, go for it, you know, figure it out. Um, let them all get tested before they go on the campus and then get them cots and sleeping bags and and they'd have a blast. There's just been very little of that stuff. And I, I honestly think, look, I'm against public sector unions, qua public sector unions. I think they're an affront to democracy. But um, uh, the the teachers unions clearly are uninterested in in mobilizing the way look nursing union nursing unions they've had their complaints but they've all been well grounded but they haven't said we're not going into hospitals until we're all vaccinated because that would be a violation of a public trust teachers have gone the exact opposite way and i just think that there's a lot of palpable frustration from natural democratic constituencies that could be exploited here as a political issue. And also just think it's a policy issue. I think it's, it's been appal- appalling.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I think that's true. I think parents are very frustrated and they don't want to blame the unions. And, you know, what we've, what we've just seen uh, from the Biden administration is this kind of political paralysis, right? They've, they're, they health people, their science people are telling them it's safe to reopen schools, but they've got the political problem that they don't want to offend the teachers unions. And so they're, they, what they've, the way they're trying to snake their way through this is to say, we can't really reopen until we provide more resources to make it safer. Now, it would be great to make it as safe as possible, but we accept costs, some risk all the time. And your, your example of nurses and uh, medical workers is, is a good illustration of that. So, you know, I, I just think this is a case where instead of solving the problem, what we've done is we've shoved the costs into an area where they're not measured and we've just dumped them on the on the households and the kids. And as long as it looks that way, it looks like we can just play it safe, right? It's that, that what we're doing is okay. It's not okay.
1: Okay, let's switch to uh, the 800-pound gorilla. Um, uh, you wrote a very good piece. Uh, I have my quibbles, but uh, I think you're basically entirely right. Uh, the enemy isn't Republicans, it's liars. Uh, why don't you explain what your your thesis is, and then we will have at it.
0: Okay, just let me do a short version of it. The short version is: uh, we are in a disinformation war. We're we're in a war that is being waged by disinformation and disinformers. Um, it is concentrated in in the Republican Party, but it is not inherently Republican or inherently conservative. It is it's uh, it's I think Donald Trump basically if not did it, certainly accelerated it. He just brought into the United States this thing that we see in dictatorships where the government just lies to you, just invents, just fabricates, just rejects the evidence of your senses. And um, we're just not used to it. And I think we've been blown away by it. It's um, And so what we need to fight this thing is a an alliance that goes from the left to the right. It, it is a cross, it is a nonpartisan, bipartisan alliance um, in which we say, This is not about the differences we have and how to interpret information. It's about whether we're going to respect information, whether we're going to respect the difference between facts and lies. And so we have to unite against this. That's the, that's the basic thesis. Quibble, let's hear your quibbles.
1: No, no, no. I I think you're, I think you're basically right. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, my mantra for the last five years is, you know, the one thing I'm not going to do is lie. and. And I've been dismayed by how many people think it's perfectly fine to lie. And I did not anticipate that there were going to be so many with the same job description as I have who are okay with, with lying. Now, lying is a blunt word, but uh, at the end of the day, it's an accurate word. If you're going out talking about how Donald Trump is a lover of the constitution or that he's, you know, um, uh, you know, that he is the hardest working president we've ever had or any of these kinds of things, or even the more substantive thing, you know, substantive lies, it's lying, you know, and and certainly, and there's just been a lot of it, but we don't need to dwell on all that. I think that, um, it's not so much a quibble, it's that, so I I have your conversation with Charlie in my head, because again, I listened to it on the drive in, um, and I recommend that people go check out uh, Charlie Sykes's Bulwark podcast if they want to get more of it. I, um, you know, I wrote a column a few months ago, sort of on this point about the weird thing that, the weird experience that I have of sort of being seen as a centrist now. And, um, uh, you know, I'm like the house Goy at NPR. Um, (laughs) and, um, there's this, and it's, it's not because I've changed most of my ideological points of view. It's just that I've sort of given up this ability to like uh, first of all, I'm not, part of the problem is that he has Donald Trump who's twisted the compass the, of the right so that Trump defines what it means to be a conservative. And if you don't go that way, um, you're kind of left in the middle because the left is going to define the left as the opposite of Donald Trump because of polarization and, and tribalism, all that kind of stuff. And so now I have like more in common in a lot of ways with someone like you or Yasha Monk or Bill Galston or whatever, because I'm not into like the they're all evil. We're all good stuff. I can't do that anymore. Um, and instead you can have arguments about basic public policy disagreements and all the rest. Okay. So what I want to, what I want to float by you though is I have, I'm coming to the conclusion that, um, so there's a tendency among conservatives and I'm included in it, um, that, think that when they are describing the problems with American culture, they exclude themselves, right? It's like America's going to hell. Look at what these, those people believe. And it's become more and more clear to me that a lot of the problems that conservatives point out about society are a accurate, but B also apply to conservatives (laughs) and everything from moral relativism, situational ethics, you know, there's a lot of weird postmodern shit going on on the right these days, but, um, a really good example of it is identity politics. And, um, the thing I think that you're getting at in your piece that is maddening to a lot of us is that we are treating not only ideological positions as a form of identity politics, but we're treating belief and outright lies as a form of identity politics that like, you know, we talk about believers of a, you know, of QAnon, as if questioning them is like questioning a Jew's faith or or denigrating a black person. You know, these notions, these more traditional notions of identity, it is now offensive to suggest that people are crazy or lying or believing in lies, um, uh, because it's that is a legitimate lifestyle choice, as it were, to be that <laughs> crazy and. Um, And I think that so I want to put it back to you, those like I think that part of the problem with I don't like identity politics. And I think that what you're seeing on the right is actually a case for my point of view that identity politics are super dangerous. Because look at what it's look how it's screwing up a lot of people on the right. What do you think of that?
0: Well, I guess I agree with this diagnosis. I'm, I don't know about, well, I mean, I, I, we need to talk more about what identity politics means. It feels like we're talking about something that's ancient, right? It's just, in, it's, in, it's, an, it's in human nature. Most of these weaknesses are in us and they're just exploited by politicians. Um, and the weakness is to uh, get attached to something without uh, either reflecting on it or being willing to reflect on it, right? In this case, a, partic- a pathology, the pathology of believing nonsense. So this, this reminds me, what you're talking about, the, the instance I'm thinking of is, you know, Tucker Carlson's monologue from a couple of days ago about how they're, when they tell you to stop believing these QAnon lies, they're attacking your conscience. <laughs> really? I mean, that's your, your conscience is falsehoods? It's a, it's a, it is a sickness. I, I mean, I agree with your fundamental diagnosis in that we need, when we see pathologies, we need, one of the first questions we need to ask is, am I doing this? Um, because you can clean up yourself much more easily than you can clean up anybody else. And that's a start towards, towards healing society. I don't want to say healing, but, you know, reforming, let's say reforming. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's very easy in politics to say, you start out with an idea of this is my side and that's their side and we're in a war. How do we beat them? Here are all the weapons available to me. Here are all the things we can do. Here are all the tactics we can use. And you start using the tactics. And one of the things you don't recognize at the outset, and it becomes a problem over time, is that the tactic comes to dominate you. You become the, the weapon. So if you believe that fudging and then lying uh, are, are necessary ways to fight, pretty soon you just become a liar. Um and you're no longer representing the left or the right, you're representing uh this pathology of the lowering of standards for political debate
1: uh and I think that is, right. that is you, i mean I think that's well, what you're saying is if you I just think what you're saying is if you convince yourself that all the other side does is lie, then you give yourself permission structure to lie too that is an
0: enormous enormous the flight ninety three mindset is at the root of so much of this evil, right? It's a, I I almost wrote a piece on this last year. Um, It was during the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation. And it was the Republicans in the Senate said, when they flagrantly, just in a terribly bad faith way, reversed what they had said about Merrick Garland and just ran through Amy Coney Barrett, they said, you know, the Democrats would absolutely do this to us. That was the rationale. It was like a reverse what would Jesus do? <laughs> it was like, what would Satan do? Well, Satan would absolutely screw us. So let's screw them before they screw us, and society absolutely collapses if that's going to be the way we think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to relitigate the Merrick Garland thing. I think we talked about it last time you were on. But yeah, yeah, um, the larger point. I mean, this gets, it gets at this thing that drives me crazy is, which I think I'm partly responsible for, and I've I think I even admitted to you last time we talked is the 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 Saul Alinsky envy on the right over the last 10 years where a bunch of sort of D'Souzian people. um, And again, I contributed to this. I was one of the first people to go after Saul Alinsky. Of course, I was saying Saul Alinsky was bad, right? I was saying that like he literally dedicates rules for radicals to Lucifer or, you know, more or less. And, and that we shouldn't be like this. And then, but what happens is when you convince people that, well, this is the reason why they always win is because they're like this. Then all of a sudden people like Steve Bannon say, we should be like this too. And, um, and they start convincing people and then you get the flight 93 stuff. And then all of a sudden, what five minutes ago we considered to be a vice in politics is now the indispensable virtue in politics, which is being willing sort of like, remember, um, Marlon Brando in apocalypse now, where he just marveled at the sheer willpower of the Viet Cong to cut off every inoculated arm in some village. <laughs> um, I mean, like, this kind of power worship crap that has come from the right about this This caricature of how powerful the left is, has been so internalized that they can't, they, they can't, they, they've made what they think is the worst standards of the left, the highest standards of a lot of people on the right. And it's, that's how civilizations go down the toilet.
0: Yeah. I mean th- uh, the uh, the pairing I'm thinking of is the one you're talking about. I think Newt Gingrich and Saul Alinsky, right? Newt Gingrich is what happens when you decide the other side is all Saul Alinsky, and we have to we have to defeat them. We have to basically become Alinsky, and and so you end up here. I mean, just to reverse this a little bit. So for for listeners on the right who uh, who feel like we're just talking about pathology on the right, I think Joni, you're the one who flagged this the other day. The the Democrats. We're saying we need to nuke the, fil- the filibuster because if Mitch McConnell were in power, he absolutely would. <laughs> and, you, and I think you pointed out, actually, he was in power and he didn't do it. So, but this Flight 93 mindset, they absolutely will screw us, even if they haven't screwed us, they surely will next time. So let's start screwing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you know, they want to kill us at dawn, so we have to get up an hour before dawn and kill all of them. You know, I mean that's it's that's the mindset. But on the on the so the identity politics point, I mean my point is is that that I mean I agree with you. I mean, I wrote a whole book of this. Identity politics is baked into human nature, it can manifest itself in healthy ways or unhealthy ways. Um, like all human nature, it's it's got good and bad in it, and you've the whole point of a civilization is channeling. Is, is trying to turn up the dials on the good and turn down the dials on the bad, right? That's what civilizations do. Civilization is a verb. We civilize people. Um, and, but my problem with identity politics is that it is, um, it always boils down to a form of tribalism, a form of, or aristocracy, or, or, or borrowed virtue, right? I, I am good not because of anything I have done, but because of what people who look like me have done, or what people who uh you know have my gender or whatever, it's, it's 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 borrowed glory in a certain sense. And um and and I think that the 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 you know the the fundamental one of the fundamentally best things about American culture is this idea that we don't always live up to but it is something that we're supposed to try to, to lean into of taking people as you find them and not thinking just because I've met someone who looks like you, I know everything I need to know about you. Um, and, uh, and I think this is a huge problem on the left. I think it's a huge problem in the culture. Um, and I think the right both sort of the sort of evangelical Christian crowd particularly you know this is a point that that tim carney makes is that the most pro trump constituency in all of 2016 were self-described white evangelical christians who didn't go to church right and and tim also makes this point about qanon is that qanon is really just something for someone to believe in and the problem is is that it's not it's horse crap right and, i mean it and and The problem is, is that because of the victim culture that, you know, sort of Tucker feeds and all the rest, if I want to say what you believe in is garbage um, and lies, the reaction from some of these people is as if I told a Muslim what you believe in is garbage and lies. And it's this ideological stuff is mapping over people like a religion, and then the religion is fueling this sense of righteous indignation that we get from identity politics. That was just sort of the point I was trying to make.
0: Okay, let me. I want to ask you a question about this. Then, um, I'm remembering now a piece that I did a few years ago about that basically said the Republican Party is a failed state and Trump is its warlord. Right. So the premise there is that there was a vacuum, and the pathologies grow in the vacuum. So QAnon and other pathologies, I mean, I guess my question is, what is the root cause? Is the vacuum the root cause? The Republican party used to have a set of beliefs. It used to have a platform for God's sake. And it has kind of ditched a lot of that. Now you may argue with me about it, but from my point of view there, you know, I watch Laura Ingram, and I'm like, and people like that, and I'm like, what's left of the Republican foreign policy of bygone decades? What's left of of uh, standing up for uh, universal values. um, What's left of um, using uh, American might, um, hopefully judiciously, I guess it's been a lot of it's been discredited by Iraq, but they don't seem to believe any of that anymore. Um, They don't have a, they spend money like any left winger would. Um, I mean, they uh, have have no no particular <laughs> stake in in what might used to be called family values anymore there's endless rationalizations of of Trump and uh other kind of betrayals of the Ten Commandments. so you kind of have a party that doesn't i i i i i'm trying to find a nice way to say they don't believe anything anymore and so what has filled the void is trumpist trumpism an attack the the cult. Um, QAnon, any story, any anything that can unite um, a resentment, uh, a fantasy, a cult, that stuff has just filled a vacuum. And this won't really be fixed until the Republican Party figures out, again, something that it believes in
1: that is important and right. Okay, so um, we could get into debate about the numbers or the the. the 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 quantity of ingredients in the cocktail you just mixed which i don't want to do let's just say i think you're basically right about the cocktail um right i mean i don't know i i think i still suspect that QAnon is a very small numerically speaking number in the republican party which is all the more reason it's insane for the republican party not just simply stomp it godzilla versus bambi style right i mean just say you know go full bircher you can't be part of that if you want to be part of this and just have an you know, excommunicate marjorie taylor green sprayer with holy water do whatever you got to do right i mean i i've but anyway let's just agree that there are these problems and that the republican party as a national institution really doesn't believe in very much i agree with that um except it does believe in owning the libs right i mean it really it, it's a profound bedrock core value of a lot of conservatism these days And, um, and like one gets the sense sometimes that, uh, Charlie Kirk would be justified in doing anything conceivably possible, saying anything so long as it ended with him sort of predator style, pulling the spine out of some, you know, prominent liberal, um, and waving it around like a trophy. Right. And and I think it's all garbage and it, it infuriates me. Um, To actually answer the question very briefly, I would start with saying I think some of this has been a long time in coming. um, And I want to talk about the cultural side of it in a second. But um, I think the accelerant, the red pill, as it were, uh, of this was the need to rationalize support for Donald Trump with the pre existing dogmatic ideological structure of the right. And since that cannot be done, right, you can't affect the square peg in the round hole. Um, It caused kind of a cognitive dissonance where people just started shedding um, a lot of their old arguments because they claimed that since conservatives never win, who cares about those principles anymore? And instead, look at all the great things, all the wins he's locking up for rejecting all of that. We should reject that too. Let's shave down the moral yardstick to fit Donald Trump's height rather than maintain the yardstick as a measure that we judge all people by. And I think once you start that process and the lies and the the self-delusions that come with it, you open up grand new vistas for craziness. Um, So I agree with all that. I want to ask you, um, so your point about facts, I agree that should be a really low bar for all of us to agree on, right? And the fact that the Oregon Republican Party issued this giant repudiation of the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment because how dare you lend credence to the idea that this was actually an assault by Trump supporters on the Capitol when we all know it was a false flag operation um, uh, is a deeply depressing moment for me. Um, And it should be a canary in a coal mine for everybody about holy crap, look what happens to Republicans when they when the, the populist QAnon types take over and let their revulsion at facts run rampant, right? I mean, like there are parts of the country now where the state GOPs might as well be the cast of a Fellini movie about clowns. And um, it's really disturbing to me. But I want to take a step back. I was saying about how conservatives are are prone to the same problems it's a societal problem, not necessarily a right-wing problem, which sort of ties into your point. Um, I'm starting to think that there's something going on with social media, and with way we're raised with screens, and the opportunities for ones and zeros, ones and zeros are so easily to manipulate, sort of like sandcast sands for sandcastle. You can do anything with them, or play doh, or whatever. That people no longer feel grounded to a factual world the way they once did. And I think you can find this across the ideological spectrum, uh, sort of a fabulism that comes in the water when you live in a ones and zeros digitized world rather than a brick and mortar world. Um, and so the QAnon stuff, the, the, the crazy you know, vampire pedophile conspiracy stuff is, is one example of it. Um, uh, I think there's you know you could blame some of it on some stuff that comes out of post postmodernism which says everything's a social construct so let's just make up our own social constructs um but i also think you're seeing some of the evidence of this in journalism where i mean just this week you saw them go after tom cotton for allegedly lying about his ranger tab thing and so determined were they to make reality thick the smear that newsweek went and edited a th- five year old piece to Take account for it during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, the Webster's dictionary changed the definition in real time during the hearings of uh, sexual preference to be a pejorative just so they could hang that on Amy Coney Barrett. The New York Times went in and redefined and rewrote without ever notifying the readers what they said about the 1619 project so that it would be more inconvenient for Trump to attack it. And I think that, like, this idea that the past is play that you can move around is part is just another facet of this problem that we're living with. I'm, I know I'm filibustering, so respond to any and all parts of all that.
0: Okay. So I'll pick the, uh, the what is it about the digital world that contributes to these pathologies? This is just the general topic. And I think the answer is to some degree fragmentation and to a much greater degree filtration. It is just much, much easier in the digital space to filter the people you hear from, the news sources you hear from, and to get what you want. And in a commercial environment, right, where they're trying to develop an audience, you you get a world like Fox News or increasingly Newsmax or OAN, <clears throat> where all these people want to hear a certain point of view. And we're going to feed it to them because that that's what they want. When we don't give it to them, they get pissed off. Um, and you've, you, you know, it, in the old days, if you wanted to have a network, you needed a bigger audience than that. But because of fragmentation, you just need a base. You just need a base. You don't need the rest of the country. So if your base believes something that's just wrong or, but as long as they can believe it together and feel solidarity in it, um, and they stay attached to you and your advertisers support you, uh, that's what you play to. And so you don't, when you don't have to go out in the world and talk to your neighbors who might not agree with you, although even that's getting filtered. But it's just, it's harder to filter, you know, move, choosing where to live is a big deal, right? Choosing which channel to flick to is really easy, right? So so what we have are these, little, the, these silos. Um, I, I'm, I've watched Fox News. I, I started recording Fox News for the last couple of months during the sort of lying about the election period. And I was, I thought, look, I want to see uh, Republican lawmakers. I want to see what, what they're saying, what newsmakers are saying on these shows. And the answer was there were very few newsmakers. There were very few people in positions of responsibility. Most of what was, I was saying on Fox news was we're interviewing our own commentators, people we've paid or people who are hawking books to our audience. And it, it, there wasn't even any informational value in what was there, but there was just constant affirmation. Um, so that, you know, that's a problem. Is it as much of a problem on the left? I don't know. I don't want to debate that right now. I, I mean, it's a human problem. I'll agree with you on that. The, the well, that's, that's sort of that, my
1: point is I'm not trying to make it a right left thing. I, I think yeah. it's the worst problem on the right right now. Not necessarily because, I mean, yeah, I, I think let's put it this way. There could be all sorts of crazy stuff going on on the left right now, but it, and I think definitionally there is, but It is not wrapped around the issue of whether or not Donald Trump did something impeachable, whether it was an assault on the Capitol, whether it was in effect a a self-coup. And these are plainly like right in the bullseye of the kind of thing people involved in politics, in public policy, and general sort of commentary and journalism should be talking about. I'm happy to have some debates about the transgender stuff and all that, and that stuff I think matters. But- the idea of just what about in what abouting away an assault on the capitol that, you know, killed cops and and was, you know uh, was you know, fueled by a president trying to steal an election. The idea that, like, as as Nikki Haley said, you know, what's the big deal? Uh, that's that's ludicrous to me. so I, I'm stipulating to that. I don't want to do a left right thing either, because I think this stuff matters regardless of party
0: right. and And if we take this back to your critique of identity politics, I think we would agree on this, that the the one of, at least, if not the core problem with identity politics is that it's uh, originally advocated and articulated with the idea that it's going to enlighten you. It's going to show you something about people and how things really are, but it becomes blinding. When you have one category for looking at understanding yourself and the world, it becomes blinding. And it might be your race or your gender or your sexual orientation or your religion, but it might be your political orientation. And I think that is what has happened, certainly on the right. Um, but the but to take this larger... Um, It can happen to you no matter whether you are on the left or the right, that you come to identify yourself and see the whole world through the lens of, is it my side, the left, or your side, the right, or vice versa, right? And if it's on my side, I'm going to defend it. And if it's on your side, I'm going to attack it. And that category applied universally blinds you to questions like, wait, although this guy is speaking for my side. Is he lying? Because that's a bigger problem than whether he's nominally liberal or conservative or whatever. Um, so it's the blinding effect of either identity or of partisanship that is, the, to me, the root problem. Um, and, and, and I cannot stress enough how important it is for people to set, a, to set that aside to, just for a moment and any question ask not whether it is left or right, but what it what is the degree of truth here, what is the degree of enlightenment, what is the degree of freedom. Larger questions, other than does it happen to be represented in this case by a Democrat or a Republican?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I I tuned in to Tucker the other night, and just for the record, you know, I'm a Fox News contributor, and you don't hear me leaping to its defense um, throughout all of your. Baseless attacks. No, uh, because I don't think they're baseless, at least on the opinion side. Um, and you know, it's a very great frustration for me on the news side to see them often center news segments about what one of their opinion, you know, commentators said last night, you know, here's what, here's what Tucker said last night about this, as if like, that's something that we should now have a news based, you know, debate about is, it bothers me i'll just say that you know and um but the conversation about fox news will have to wait for another time um but i heard tucker say the other night that you know look there are millions of people in america who believe the election was stolen you may think they're wrong you may think they're crazy to do that but they believe it and if you want to reach these people you could do what good politicians do and try to persuade them that they're wrong but if you ridicule them, uh, you'll chase them away. It's another example of this very clever pose that Tucker does where he is defending people by sounding like the fault lies someplace else. Right. And what he doesn't at any point there do is take a side about whether or not the election was in fact stolen. Right. He just says, these people believe it and you Republicans who think, or you Democrats who think that's wrong, you should try to persuade them, and a you know if if you think that's a bad position, but if you ridicule them, then you know you're going to chase them away. And nowhere in there does he think, well, I have the highest-rated cable te- television show in America. Maybe I should actually explain to my own viewers that they're wrong about it being stolen, right? Or that the evidence just isn't there. Um, and there's a, so much of that winking, and it's almost Straussian that kind of like winking at the audience. I'm not actually going to say the audience is wrong about anything. I'm just going to attack the people who insult my audience by saying they're wrong. And that's a huge, it's a huge problem on the right these days. And, but I also think it's, 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 it's not a both sides of It's a problem on like, just as of cable news in general, whenever you're micro targeting audiences, you have to end up telling them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And um, I think there's a real disservice done to democracy and to Americans in general when you take issues of principle and you make it sound like all Democrats believe this and all Republicans believe that um, because it, it it turns into popular front politics and popular front politics are the enemy of all decency and and democracy um, in 99% of the cases.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mindset that is, it's a commercial mindset almost. We're marketing, we're not leading, right? We have, we have a market. The market is people who believe this stuff. What can we sell them, right? How can we, how can we give them what they want as opposed to leadership, which is (laughs) is what they, what they, what people need to hear. Um, And you also put your finger, it's also a lawyer's mindset. I mean, you were talking earlier about, the, what a lot of Republican pathologies came from trying to rationalize Trump. How can, what, what do we need to believe? What do we need to tell people in order to sort of hold this thing together around this guy? Um, and I look at Ted Cruz and I just see, this is why people hate lawyers, right? Is what the way Ted Cruz thinks is how can I rationalize this position rather than which is the right position? Um, and he's very good at it. Uh, but it doesn't, um, All it does is feed the pathologies. And one of the terrible conceits that elites tend to have is that um, they're smart and that makes them better at understanding what's right. Actually, it just makes it easier for them to rationalize often what's wrong.
1: So let me ask you a question. Let's move on to the impeachment stuff just for a little bit. Um, uh, I, I, I gather you believe it's okay to impeach a president or to have have a trial for president after he leaves office. Right. Um, I,
0: yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, certainly something like that needs to be done.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I agree. I think I've probably been a little, like I had a podcast earlier this week with AB Stoddard and I was probably a little too dismissive of the counter arguments about whether or not it's constitutional. I think there are actually good faith people who Thing, you know like michael Lodig, i think is a serious guy um i have lawyer friends who are serious people ultimately i come down on the side that it is constitutional it's kind of necessary regardless i mean like if you think about it the idea that somehow if you can't impeach a president in the waning days of his presidency it means you can't have any constitutional sanction for outrageous behavior. All president needs to do is wait for the last 30 days of his presidency and can get away with anything basically. Right. That's nuts. That can't be you know, like consistent with what the founding fathers think and all that. Um, but, and one of the reasons why I was so dismissive of it is that I don't for a moment believe that if the situation were reversed, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, all these people wouldn't be arguing that we have to impeach Barack Obama. Right. Um, I guess the question I have is how many of the Democrats do you think did a really deep study of the constitutional issues and, um, looked at the Belknap impeachment and, uh, and read Madison's comments on these things and and considered Burke's impeachment of Hastings after he had left his position and reasoned that it was constitutional, or do you think it's just simply partisanship on both sides kind of thing
0: well i no i don't think i think for democrats it's just an easy call the question to me is what's an easy call for the democrats it's it's to impeach and to and uh to convict it's certain there's no price to conviction at this point because he's not president anymore you're not you know you're not even upsetting the the flow of government um but they certainly believe that trump needs to be that a sanction needs to be applied. And I, and I agree with that. Um, the Republicans are doing the opposite. Republicans are just looking for what's the easiest way out of this. They, how can I get out of this without offending my base? How can I get out of it without being primaried? And for them, it's, you know, finding a technical excuse not to vote on the merits of, of, of the conviction. And therefore the Rand Paul argument that it's, that it's um, too late uh, is just the easiest out for them. They're, they're, they're taking it for that reason. I, Personally, my view of this is, I actually don't care that much whether it is called impeachment. I think that there has to be. I I believe in bad guys. Okay, this is makes me a little bit unusual in the Democratic Party. I believe in that there are tyrants, <laughs>
1: say.
0: there are tyrants, there are aggressors that I, I believe in deterrence. I believe in that appeasement fails and, and brings more aggression and that that is happening in the United States, right? And I think what Jamie Raskin said, the congressman uh, from Maryland is absolutely right, which is that if we don't apply some sanction to Trump, we've just established a rule that uh, if you lose an election, you can try to stage a coup. And if you succeed, you're president for life or whatever. And if you fail, hey, I'm on my way out. It's too late, right? Uh, you, you could, I guess, you could still prosecute the guy, but like there, you know, there has to be a sanction for that, or we will have tyrants in this country the way tyrants are in other countries. So whether that is called impeachment or not doesn't concern me so much. But if we have, imp- if impeachment is the, uh, mechanism that the founders intended for that situation, then that is the one that should be applied. That's my personal view.
1: Yeah. No, like, I, like, again, I think that's, that's entirely reasonable. I, I, I cannot believe that, that the founders, you know, I, I always used to make fun of Tom Friedman because he had this chapter title in his, one of his books about how it would be awesome if we could be China for a day. The argument being that that way, if you didn't care about democracy, you could just have, uh, you, say, you know, you could impose optimal policies just by experts, and look at all the wonderful things we could do if we didn't have to get through the filibuster or through the Senate and all this kind of stuff. And I always used to mock him, and I still mock him because I think Tom Friedman's suck-upery to China in the 1990s was outrageous. But uh, 1990s and early 2000s. But um, I always used to say, you know. Sure. I mean, look at those founding fathers, all that stuff about checks and balances and democracy and the virtues of a republic and separation of powers. And, and, but look, they were just morons because what they should have done is argued for all of that stuff for 364 days of the year. And then on the 365th day, it's tyranny day. And you can just get all of these wonderful things done, right? The idea that the founding fathers thought that on your last day of presidency. Um, you could sell pardons. You could give away state secrets to uh, your enemies. You could do all sorts of terrible things um, without Congress taking a stand against it in any way. Never mind, and you know, in, in, in sending a mob on the first branch of government just strikes me as, as lunatic. And it's to me, it's sort of like the filibuster. It may, There may be an academic case that it's unconstitutional. Um, in the sense, and what I mean by the filibuster is the filibuster is not in the constitution. It's become a tradition. I know you don't like it, but, um, it seems to be a perfectly legitimate precedent for the Senate to set, to say that you can't do that. And we're going to have an impeachment trial for you. And since it, it will never be justiciable, right? No court is going to overturn what the Senate does here. The Senate has a supreme authority to do it. It becomes constitutional simply by doing it. And, um, and that's fine by me. I mean, this is not the living constitution here. This is like how precedents about common law and about justice and norms develop is you have bad cases, you have a res- antibody response to it by the political system, and, um, and it, henceforth there's now this precedent that says that you can be impeached and, you know, and tried after you... Or, wasn't impeached when he left office. It was only the trial be when he leaves office. If that becomes a precedent in the future, it does not scare me in the slightest.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a tough call in these situations because the what, what the founders wanted and what, what anybody designing a, a free system would want is checks and balances in all directions, right? And so one of the things you have to be careful is that if one branch is checking the other, that the branch that's doing the checking doesn't become the tyrant. Um, so the question is, is, is the legislature more of a threat to the executive or vice versa? Um, are we gonna? Are we facing some sort of crisis of permanent impeachments? I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to impeach Joe Biden on her first day. Is that going to become a thing? I don't see evidence yet that that's a thing. I don't think the Clinton, the Bill Clinton example suggests that um, there there will be massive abuse of this. Um, and so, given that we just had you know a a violent, I don't want to. I don't know how to describe it. I just call it an attack an attack, a mob attack that was stoked by the president. But that that is sort of the immediate threat. And I don't have the confidence that I had five years ago, Jonah, that we're not gonna elect another Trump, in which case we really do need to set a precedent
1: against this kind of behavior. No, I I agree with that entirely. And look, just the simple fact that even after Trump did this, it looks pretty clear, at least at this point, it's going to be very, very difficult to get 67 votes to convict, um, suggests that it will always be hard to get 67 votes to, you know, or or 78 votes once you guys add all these new states um, to convict. <laughs> um, uh, and so the idea, I mean, like, this is the question I, I, I honestly have, and I should have someone on here who, you know, I mean, I should argue with Hugh Hewitt about this or something, but... You compare the two worst case scenarios, right? So worst case scenario is you have more impeachments going forward after people leave office that probably won't succeed, um, but waste a lot of time, right? Okay. Or what's the worst case scenario about letting the precedent of what Donald Trump did about trying to steal the election and then sending a a mob to the Capitol to intimidate the, the vice president in Congress to disregard the constitution and hand him power when he didn't didn't have it legitimately. It seems to me like you can come up with a lot more worst case scenarios from letting that precedent stand than letting you know the first one stand. And yet, all I hear from Republicans is how dangerous it is is to let the the precedent of impeaching a president after he leaves office stand, as if that will like yield horror of horrors, and the other one won't. And I just I don't get how you can weigh those two, even if they're very unlikely worst case scenarios, just one worst case scenario is just not that bad. And the other one freaking terrible.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think this, this is actually connected to what we were saying earlier about the flight 93 mindset, right? Uh, you just focus all of your intellect on the threat that might be posed conceivably by the other side. And that allows you to ignore the threat that's, that's raised by what you're doing. Right. So, I mean, what if you have, you know, in the flight 93 model, you would have a lot of people getting on planes with guns, and you'd say, "Hey, look, we need these guns because there might be another hijacking." And you, you can you have to be careful that in the course of doing stuff like that, you don't end up with a lot of gunfights on planes, which is, you know, what I mean. That I, I, this is probably one of those metaphors that takes you away from the point. But the point is, in this case, you're so if you're so concerned about an ex post facto impeachment, uh, you can end up uh, creating a situation in which. You've made it much more likely that we will have future executive tyrants. It could be freaking Michael Avenatti. You know, don't don't tell yourself that this that this only will be your people who do it.
1: I, I am with you on that. I, I have other things I wanted to get to today, and I realize because I'm so sleep deprived. This happens when I'm sleep deprived. As I end up monologuing and filibustering, and I apologize for that. Um, and also, since they're who knows when the strange drilling sounds from upstairs. Um, for all I know, it's, it's, it's Hillary Clinton putting together the torture table with the manacles for the kids. Um, uh, so I don't want to uh, risk that anymore, but, uh, Will, thank you so much for coming on. I hope to have you back. Uh oh, thanks, Jonah. This was a lot of fun. Okay. So Will has left the studio or the conversation or whatever. Actually, he was recording from his closet and, uh, he, I, I, I don't think he's still in the closet. Um, so to speak. I mean, that literally not figuratively. Um, and, uh, I apologize if there were weird audio issues with today's episode. Um, basically everything I try to do to fix all of this, um, just goes the wrong way on me. Uh, and you know, I feel like, I feel like the accountant without any, um, gang protection being put in general pop or something like that. And just everybody's eaten apple brown Betty off my tray. And, taking my stuff. Um, Zencaster is screwing me. Everything's screwing me. The Wi-Fi just screwed me. Uh, There was construction upstairs and um, it vexes me. So anyway, but I hope it didn't translate to you guys. Again, as I said to Will, I apologize if I, if I rambled on or filibustered, part of it was this problem with the delay in the audio. Part of the problem is that I've just been up since four in the morning. And um, so anyway, it's always great to talk to Will uh, please come by uh, com. check out our wares, sign up for newsletters, um, and uh, really appreciate uh, you guys sticking with us, and um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.